Good afternoon. Welcome to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Glad uh, you're able to spend a little time with me today. I'm in the thick of things with my tax work, and it's been a quite a crazy week, but I'm glad to be here. This is uh, my one enjoyment of the of the afternoon, I think, so should be should be good. I'll try to entertain, enlighten, educate, and do what I normally try to do. I'm actually just getting situated here. Just got in. And a couple things for the tax tax world, the new tax law that they not the one the one that we've been talking about for a year now that they passed at the end of uh, 2017, has it been that long? Yeah, it's crazy. 2018 was the new year of the new tax law. Now they have a new, a few new things that came up. And now that I'm in the 2019 tax filing season, I'm starting to put those into practical use and actually uh, seeing them in action. Uh, one of them that is interesting is if you're retired and you have retirement money like an IRA or a 401k or a 403b for the teachers, if you're a teacher, that's a 403b. If you have that kind of money, which is called qualified money, in other words, that's the money that you put away pre-tax and when you take it out, it's taxable. So that's called qualified. Everything else is called non-qualified. The rule forever, well, for a long, long time, has been that in the year that you turn 70 and a half years old, you're required to start pulling out your qualified money based on a formula based on your age. The new law that's just been passed raises that age up to age 72. So in case you're somebody who doesn't need to take that money out to use for your monthly bills, you can now post, if you turn 20, I just read this law this morning helping someone. If you turn 70 and a half in the year 2020, under the old law, you would have to start withdrawing by the end of 2020. In the new law, you now can wait until 2021, the year that you turn, or the year that you turn 72. It's not a big deal for most people. A lot of people, by the time they retire, if they're 65 and they retire, they may already be drawing on that as part of their monthly income. But uh, why this is helpful is in case you have other income that you don't need to do these withdrawals, you now have at least an extra year, maybe an extra year and a half before you have to start taking them out. So that's sort of a plus. Now, in the same in the same time that they did that new rule, they did another rule, and uh, quickly I'll try not to bore you with too many details, but if someone inherits a qualified account like an IRA or a 401k, the old law was that person has to start withdrawing from the inherited IRA, they call it, but it's based on their age and it can be a lot less. So in other words, let's say you're 35 years old and your parents leave you an IRA and now it's your inherited IRA. In the old law, you could draw that out a little at a time over a long period of time and pay very little tax, at least not pay the tax soon. You would pay it currently on a small amount. So you would base you, the amount they make you take out on your younger age, and that might only be like 1%. So uh, the if you're 70 and a half, when you have to start taking out, now it's 72, it's around 4% that they tell you you have to take out. But if you're 35 years old with an inherited IRA, you probably only have to take out something like 1%. That's the old rule for inheriting inherited IRAs or inherited qualified money. The new rule for them is, and I'm still getting through all the details. I'm not a complete expert on this yet. It's pretty new. 
But the new rule is you have to remove all that money into your taxable income within five years. It still may be better to space that out over five equal payments if you're if it keeps you in a lower tax bracket. But the negative there is that if you're a young guy that doesn't need this money, you're now forced to take it out and pay tax on it within five years of receiving it. That would be the, I'd say that's the negative feature of that new brand new tax law. The other thing about the new law that I'm still researching, I, I'm not an expert at this part of it either. I will be though, because I, I need to review all of my fire victim clients from 2018. And a lot of that is still affecting their 2019 work. There is a new provision that's been done that's going to help some people that might not have been able to get a lot of help in 2018. It's now been said that people who don't itemize deductions and therefore weren't able to use the casualty loss of the fire in 2018, there's a new rule that seems to be allowing you to increase your standard deduction. I don't know all the details yet. I'm just now learning about all this, and I'm going to make sure I know so all the people I'm helping this tax season, I can review their 2018 also. But the, the bottom, bottom line story on this is, if you were told in 2018 that the amount of loss you could claim did not help you because you weren't itemizing deductions, there seems to be a new law that is going to allow people in 2018 and 19 to actually get some help, even though they aren't itemizing via a thing called a, an additional standard deduction. Like I said, I am not an expert on that, but it is something that just came out and that could affect people too. Hopefully that'll help you. I think we have some fun information in store for a little later in the show. Uh, like I said, I just, uh, with all the busy appointments I've got this time of year, I, I honestly just sat down right before the show started today, and I didn't really have time for the preparation that I normally like to have here uh, before, before my 3 o'clock start, but this time I, I just quite didn't make it. And honestly, it wasn't my fault. I'm sure you've heard that before. I actually hit traffic in a about a 10-block trip from my office to the studio. Unbelievable, but they were actually stopping traffic on a street that's normally completely quiet and ne never any real traffic. So uh, I do have one thing to discuss uh, first off. I have to grab my uh, notebook tablet here. Hang on one sec. Because I bookmarked a very interesting article. And I want to share this with you. I, nor I, normally save my, uh, I normally save my precious metals news until later in the show. But due to my, due to my traffic and schedule today, I'm going to change it up a little bit and I'm going to start off with a little bit of uh, precious metals news. Oh, and I also wanted to keep everybody posted. Last week I discussed, uh, I discussed uh, the topic was what happens when they lose control of the precious metals market. And I discussed palladium hitting 2,500 an ounce and rhodium hitting 9,000 or so an ounce. And I'm pleased to report today that rhodium has hit 10,004, which is a new all-time high ever. I believe it hit 10,000 in 2008. So honestly, with inflation, I wouldn't call this a new all-time high because $10,000 in 08 is probably worth at least 12 or 13 now. So technically, rhodium has not made a new all-time high, but uh, in dollar terms, if you don't take into account inflation, rhodium has actually made an all-time high. So I thought that was pretty exciting. Yep, 10,004 uh, as we speak. 
and I thought that was kind of cool. Like I say, I wish I had bought 100 ounces of uh, rhodium, but at the time I bought my one ounce, I didn't have $120,000 to gamble on rhodium. It's not like I work in the in the mining sector or anything. So, but anyway, I always think that's kind of fun to look at a price like that. That's what I'm expecting. If you've done any buying of physical gold and silver, I'm expecting at some point, I have no idea when, I'm expecting the same thing to happen to uh, your gold and silver that's already happened to palladium and rhodium. And like I say, that's the, uh, that is, that's what happens when they lose control of a, of a metals market. Okay, so I want to share an article that I think is very apropos, especially to what I've been saying. It's actually dated today. Uh, I got it from my favorite news distributor called ZeroHedge.com. This is from a guy that I've read before many times. His name's S.R.S. Rocco, and I might get to his name here at the end of the article, but that's his website. And the name of this article is, There's Just Not That Much Silver Investment Insurance to Go Around. Remember, I've always said that these uh, precious metals purchases you might want to do some of is insurance for your money, and that's what he calls it also. So I'm just going to read some of this really good article. As the Fed and central banks continue propping up the financial markets, many precious metals analysts advise owning gold over silver. They say that gold is the key precious metal that will be used to reintroduce a sound monetary system. However, I believe the real winner in terms of future value in percentage terms will be silver, not gold. Why? It all comes down to energy. While I have repeated myself many times over about energy being the driver of the economy, there is a large percentage of precious metals analysts and investors that still don't get it. And even worse than that, one website that publishes my work removes the energy content from the article while only allowing the precious metals subject matter to remain. I am going to say this once more. If you don't understand energy, you will not understand the real reason to own precious metals. For example, after my last video, Gold and Silver Investing, The Amazing Untold Facts, one commenter stated that after they watched the information, they wouldn't sell their silver. This is the key. If precious metals investors do not understand the energy, they may lose faith in holding gold and silver in the sea of conflicting financial and economic information. I continue to hear some precious metals analysts say negative things about owning silver during a recession or economic downturn. Well, for one thing, silver did very well during very high U.S. unemployment from 2009 to 2011. When the U.S. unemployment rate was 4.5% in March 2007, silver was trading at $15. However, by early 2011, when U.S. unemployment was at 9%, silver reached $50. Secondly, the future value or price action of silver will not act the same way as it did in the past. Due to the massive propping up of the stock market, financial system, and economy by the central banks, when the markets turn down, investors don't have many choices to protect wealth this time around. Bonds won't be the safe haven as they were in the past because bonds are nothing more than debt instruments. The important silver-to-gold production ratio and what that means going forward. So, uh, we're going to be coming up on the first break, but I'm going to, I'm going to go into this a little bit. Uh, don't, don't lose me here. Just stick with me. This is really good information. When Spain was the leading empire during the 15 to 1700s, the world was producing a lot more silver than gold. From 1493 to 1600, the world's silver to gold production ratio was 32 to 1. From 1601 to 1700, the silver-to-gold production ratio increased to 44 to 1. As the centuries went by, the world's silver-to-gold production ratio declined. Now, uh, I'm going to slow down here because we're coming up on that break. But what this article is going to talk about, and I think you'll find it very interesting, is the ratio of the silver production versus gold production. I think you'll be surprised when we know that right now the silver to gold price ratio, 
they call it the gold-silver ratio. It's at around 90 right now. That means it's 90 ounces of silver for every one ounce of gold. I'm going to continue this article in a minute after this break. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. I'll be right back. This is Andrew Palmquist, General Manager here at KKXX Life Radio. It's our vision and our passion to continue to expand the message of the gospel by building our station. For the last few years, we've been working to get a power increase on our FM station, and we're preparing to file that paperwork with the FCC. It'll take them between three and six months to grant our application. And now we're just trying to raise the funds to build the antenna. If you'd like to help, you can go to our website at kkxx.net. And you can either join as a monthly partner or give a one-time donation towards this project. Or if it's easier for you to send a check in the mail, our mailing address is 1363 Longfellow Avenue, Chico, California, 95926. Again, that's 1363 Longfellow Avenue, Chico, California, 95926. And we're hoping to motivate between 20 and 30 listeners to become regular supporters of the station. We have a unique opportunity to continue to grow our signal. Two Nicks. That's right, double Nicks. Nick Guy, Private Eye, and Mr. Nick of We Kids. Must be true. Saturday mornings between 9 and 10 here on KK Nicks Nicks. This is Buzz Beatty. If it's 2.30, it's your home today on KKXX Life Radio. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA, taking a little bit of time out from a busy tax season day and hopefully entertaining you a little bit, educating a little bit. Uh, I'm going to continue reading from this article because I think this is very important for you to know. Uh, Like I said, the title of the article is There's Just Not That Much Silver Investment Insurance to Go Around. And um, I'm going to just go back a little bit here. So remember, when Spain was the leading empire from 1493 to 1600, silver to gold production was 32 to 1. From 1600 to 1700, that's after they really got a foothold probably in Mexico, the silver to gold production increased to 44 to 1. As the centuries went by, the world silver to gold production ratio declined. From 1901 to 2000, it fell to just 7.7 to 1. Now, I'm going to just take a little quick break here and remind you. I just was telling you that the price of silver is 90 ounces of silver for one ounce of gold. So this is, again, showing that it's totally out of whack. I'll, I'll continue. The figures in the chart above are a million troy ounces. Now, if you don't believe energy is a key factor, take a look at the production level of silver and gold during 1901 to 2000. When oil came on the market, it allowed gold and silver production to increase exponentially. So what he's saying is all these metals prices are completely related to energy. Okay, so I'm going to continue. World silver production during 1901 to 2000 increased 5.5 times compared to the prior century, and gold surged nearly 10 times. So in other words, what he's saying is With the advent of oil and uh, oil-using machinery like trucks and bulldozers, world silver production increased five and a half times compared to the prior century, and gold production surged nearly 10 times. In 2019, the world's silver-to-gold production ratio will fall to 7.6 to 1. Thus, the world is producing one heck of a lot less silver compared to gold than it did during the 18th and 19th centuries. Then he says the next chart shows the world silver to gold production ratio from 2010 to 2019. And that shows that the ratio of silver to gold production, in other words, mined, is going down now. And it says once global silver production peaked in 2015, 
and declined as the gold mine supply continued to increase, the ratio fell from 8.3 to 1 to 7.6 to 1. This is excellent news for silver investors, whether they realize it or not. Furthermore, a large percentage of the global silver mine supply that made its way into the market is gone forever, or let's say less likely to find its way back into the market. Why? Two reasons. Because only 20% of industrial silver consumption is recycled back into the market, and only 9-10% to of silver jewelry. As I stated in previous articles, 90% of gold recycling comes from gold jewelry. The next chart shows the total global non-investment silver demand, excluding silverware. As we can see, of the 7.7 million ounces of non-investment silver demand, I'm sorry, of 7.7 billion ounces of non-investment silver demand, from 2010 to 2019, only 1.8 billion ounces were recycled. Thus, approximately 5.8 billion ounces of that non-investment demand over the past decade is likely lost for good. Of course, we could see more recycling of this past industrial and jewelry consumption, but probably only a small percentage. So what he's saying there is that silver not being worth as much as gold doesn't get recycled through jewelry uh, melting. When countries removed silver from their currency, it was recycled and fed back into the market to fill the insatiable industrial demand that took off during World War II. The world basically ate its seed corn of monetary silver, so we could have more fancy gadgets and technology. The last chart just shows how little above-ground silver investment stocks are remaining compared to the massive 51.5 billion ounces mined since 1493. According to the 2019 World Silver Survey and World Gold Council, there is approximately 2.5 billion ounces of above-ground investment silver versus 2.4 billion ounces of gold. Now think about that. I'm going to stop here for a second. Think about that. You can buy 90 ounces of silver for one ounce of gold right now, but the amount of silver in the world's supply is almost exactly the same as the amount of gold. And remember, silver, does when it gets used, it does not come back as recycle like gold does. Okay, this chart should help precious metals understand why silver will outperform gold in the future. There just isn't that much more above-ground investment silver stocks in the world as there are gold stocks. Moreover, 41% of the known total world cumulative gold production, this is gold, from 1493 to 2019 is held in above-ground investment gold stocks compared to only 5% for silver. Again, the world burned through silver like mad to supply our enormous industrial needs, but also to provide the market with a great deal of inexpensive silver jewelry. Unfortunately, most silver jewelry won't be recycled, even at a $100 silver price. If a ring contains 10 grams of silver, that's only $30 worth of silver. Silver investors have been given a huge gift that most don't realize, because the world consumed tens of billion ounces of silver for industrial and jewelry fabrication. Most of this will never come back to the market, which means when push comes to shove, Investors looking to protect wealth won't find that much silver available to acquire, only at much higher prices. I will be putting out more videos explaining why precious metals investors should concentrate on the energy industry. So anyway, this guy's name is SRS Rocco, which is spelled S-R-S-R-O-C-C-O, and his thing is called the SRS Rocco Report. And he's, uh, I've been reading him for quite a while. He's very, uh, he's very on top of the whole uh, precious metals market. It's really interesting. Well, we're coming up on that second break, but I just have to share with you some. Uh, oh, a couple things. Uh, I try not to be. I try not to be real political, but there's the State of the Union address tonight, and uh, possibly the end of the impeachment hearings tomorrow. And I, I like I say, I do try to be. Uh, non-political here on Business Buzz because, I mean, you know, I don't like to do things that 
divide people and some people agree with one thing, some people agree with another, everybody's right. Uh, like the Course in Miracles says, if there's more than one answer, there's no answer. But one thing I would like to point out, and this is only because I'm a, I have a law degree, uh, I'm not an attorney, I don't play one on television, but I do have a law degree. And the one thing I remember very, very specifically from criminal law was that if you are accused of a crime, our system is completely based on the methodology or the system that the prosecution or the state proves that you're guilty to the jury, you know, the jury's there, but they put on the case to prove your guilt. And when there's a criminal sentencing or a criminal verdict, uh, it's always beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, usually beyond a reasonable doubt. So the basic theory in our society in the United States is that you're innocent until you're proven guilty. What I do see in this Senate trial is the House side is insinuating that the defendant, in this case uh, the president, is now required by some fashion of theirs to prove that he's innocent by bringing on a bunch of witnesses to prove his innocence. And my main point of being a law, law student is that's backwards. It's up to them to prove he's guilty, not the other way around. So I don't want to be political, but from a law student standpoint, that just seemed very backwards to me. And I don't know how it's all going to come out. It's not over yet, but I just wanted to point out that uh, we shouldn't forget that in the, in, the, in the United States, you're innocent first, and then they prove you guilty, and then you're convicted. You don't have to prove you're innocent if someone accuses you of something. So that's my law school event for the day. I'll see you after this break. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Stay tuned. Attention KKXX listeners. Be sure to tune in weekdays at 8 a.m. for Hope for Today. We are excited to have the opportunity to air the Hope for Today program with David Hawking. Please make sure to support the ministry work of David Hawking and all the other wonderful ministries that allow us to spread the good news of Christ here on the North Valley's home for Christian talk. KKXX 930. In this age of ear-tickling, where are we to turn to hear the Word? This is Pastor Greg Lundstedt from Equipping the Saints Radio, and I would like to invite you to tune in to Equipping the Saints to hear the uncompromising preaching and teaching of God's Word on this station. Look us up on the web at www.etsradio.org. We look forward to our time in the Word together. Pastor Greg Lundstedt and Equipping the Saints Radio. Weeknights at 6.30 here on KKXX. Listen, as a hiring manager, I've got to tell you, the best job candidate isn't always the typical candidate. Sometimes they're a grad of life. Meet the grads of life, young adults of unique determination and experience, an ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Sometimes the best candidates aren't the ones you're used to. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. To buy your home, you became a house-hunting ace. Learned about loans, scoured neighborhoods, and asked the right questions. Now you're queen of your castle. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll feel empowered to own your retirement like you own your home. Go to aceyourretirement.org. Because when it comes to clearing financial hurdles, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA, and I just could not resist sharing with you some sports business entertainment. Well, it's not really entertainment. I'm going to read a small bit of a book that I read. Uh, let me see when this book was 
published. I read this book cover to cover. I don't read that many books cover to cover. I lose interest a lot unless it's something I really, really like. This book is copyright 1989. The author's name is Dan E. Moldea, M-O-L-D-E-A. I know he also wrote a book about Robert Kennedy's assassination. But this book is my is the one I always remember of this guy, and I've saved it, and I brought it today. And I think you'll enjoy this uh, entertainment and business news because with the Super Bowl just being over, and I really don't want to talk about the Super Bowl itself for reasons that should be obvious. This book is called Interference, and I think it has a subtitle. Says, Interference, How Organized Crime Influences Professional Football. This is written in 1989. So let me, uh, I'm just deciding which, which chapter I wanted to read the most here. They're all so good. Let me see. Oh, I don't know. They're all, they're all here. Okay, let's just do, uh, let me see. I'm going to read this interesting one here called Rosenblum's Fatal Swim. And Rosenblum, I believe, was the owner of the Los Angeles Rams. There's a whole chapter here about how he started becoming the owner, but this chapter, uh, chapter 38, is Rosenblum's Fatal Swim. I remember that he died and his Uh, widow got the team. Her name was Gloria something. We'll get to it in a minute. Anyway, I've been a big NFL football fan my whole life, so I remember a lot of these names. It's been a long time since I've read this, but I'm just going to share with you a short chapter from this book that I recommend you look at called Interference. It's probably available on like Google free online, you know, those books that that they have online. But the author's name is Moldea, and the name of the book is uh, Interference. So let's look at Rosenblum's Fatal Swim. Yeah, he was the owner of the Los Angeles Rams. Here we go. Under Carol Rosenblum, and that's a man, the Los Angeles Rams had won six consecutive NFC Western Division championships, but they had lost four of the last five NFC title games and had never gone to a Super Bowl. To Rosenblum, that was the prize, and he had been unable to grasp it, despite the fact that he had continued to have one of the biggest payrolls in the NFL. Although he enjoyed calling the Rams a family, it had been nearly torn apart by internal strife that he himself caused in his desperation to have another world championship team, just as he'd had with the Baltimore Colts in 58-59 and in Super Bowl V in 1971. Although Rosenblum's oldest son, Steve, was running the team on the day-to-day basis, Carroll had become known as the godfather and the great white father to those on the team. While some of his supporters viewed the descriptions as demonstrations of endearment, others saw them as being scornful slaps against the white, toupee Rosenblum who bullied his way through the Rams organization and the NFL. Suddenly, taking a hands-on approach to running his team, he often arrived at the Rams' practices in a helicopter and watched from the sidelines, sitting in a director's chair with his name printed on the back. Watching Rosenblum, according to his friends, was a deja vu of his final days in Baltimore. He began having trouble with the local media and city officials. He again claimed a lack of fan support. He was irrational in his handling of his head coaches. He ran through a string of quarterbacks, all of whom he considered unworthy, until 1977, when Joe Namath came to the Rams to play his final season in the NFL. However, Namath was injured in the fourth game and spent the rest of the season on the bench. Rosenblum finally decided to leave the Los Angeles Coliseum to play in a newer stadium. He had announced in July 1978 that he was planning to move the Rams nearly 30 miles south to Anaheim, where he had obtained almost 100 acres of Orange County land with the right to develop parking lots adjacent to the stadium. He also had received a pledge from city officials prior to his real estate purchase to increase the seating capacity of its Big A stadium, 
the home of the California Angels Major League Baseball team, from 42000 to 70000 When Rosenblum made his decision to move, he called his old friend Howard Cosell for advice. Cosell, in one of the most vivid descriptions of Rosenblum, testified before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee about this conversation he had had with the boss of the Rams. Cosell said, I was on assignment one day in Los Angeles, and I got a call at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel from one of the most brilliant men I know, Carol Rosenbroom, extraordinary businessman. And he asked me to come over to his home on Bellagio Road in the Bel Air section of Greater Los Angeles. I went with my wife, and we sat at poolside with Carol as he talked in those carefully muted measured tones, wearing his great suede slippers, no socks. It was Hollywood. The manicured gabardine slacks, the proper suede belt, the carefully tailored suede sports shirt, the silk ascot to envelop the otherwise open neck. And he tried me on for media size, and he said, Howard, what would be your on-air position if I moved the Rams to Anaheim? I said, my position has never wavered. I believe that franchise removal should be countenanced apart from abridgment of the lease or another extraordinary matter to the detriment of the tenant should be predicated only upon the ability to show continuity of economic distress. But Howard, Walter O'Malley, who moved the Brooklyn Dodgers to Los Angeles, did it. Wellington Mara, who moved the New York Giants to New Jersey, did it. I can have the best of both worlds. I can have the land, indeed, options at a marvelous price for 95 acres, duly exercised a subsequent deal with Gannett Realty in Boston and more than 110 luxury lodges, loges, producing in the area of $2.5 million a year income. I said, Carol, this is... This just is not right. You ask me my position, you know it. You know where I stand. But Howard, is it legal? Is it not? I believe Howard Cosell was an attorney. Says, yes, it is legal because Los Angeles would take whatever they could get. Los Angeles had filthy hands. They had taken the Rams from Cleveland, the Dodgers from Brooklyn, the Lakers from Minneapolis. So they had to take another tax, steal another team. Cosell's advice might have had an impact on Rosenblum's thinking, because Rosenblum began speaking to Al Davis on a regular basis about moving the Oakland Raiders to the Los Angeles Coliseum. These conversations would result in Davis's antitrust suit against the NFL, which became Rosenblum's final revenge against Pete Rozelle, the commissioner. Okay, this is going to get good. Uh, hang, in, hang in there. During the early spring of 1979, the Rosenblums took a vacation in Golden Beach, Florida. In the early afternoon of Monday, April 2nd, after a week of vacationing, the 72-year-old Carol Rosenblum returned from a telephone call with a Rams vice president, who later said that Rosenblum's spirits were high and that he was feeling good. During that discussion, during their discussion, Rosenblum also told him that the wind was too strong for tennis that day. Rosenblum was to have played with real estate developer Irving Cowan, the owner of Diplomat Hotel and Country Club in Hollywood, Hollywood, Florida, just north of Miami, and near the Rosenblum's Golden Beach Vacation House. However, Cowan was extremely busy that day and had to postpone. The night before, Cowan had given the Rosenblum's tickets to the Liza Minnelli concert in Miami Beach. He was fine, Cowan told me. We couldn't get tickets seated together, but we talked at intermission and after the concert. He didn't seem aggravated, aggravated or agitated. I didn't see any perceptible problems. He was the old Carol. Instead of playing tennis, the Rosenblum's spent the day relaxing. Although the sun shone brightly, the wind was kicking up and gusting. The waves from the ocean were breaking heavily onto the beach, mixing a tremendous amount of sand with the surf and causing the clear blue Florida water to turn brownish gray. Just before 2 p.m., Carol, wearing a blue-striped bathing suit, told Georgia, I'm going to take a walk. I'll be back in a little while. The stretch of shoreline where Rosenblum strolled was well known to him. He had lived at Golden Beach for nearly eight years until he sold his oceanfront house in 1972 when he swapped the Colts for the Rams. The sprawling beach house where the family was now staying was rented. Now, I'm going to come up on that uh, last break of the show, but I want to continue reading because this is a really a good chapter. A few minutes later at the Diplomat Hotel, Cowan was still working in his office. Cowan recalls, I received a rather frantic call from Georgia, who told me Georgia's his uh, wife who told me they were in the process of pulling Carol from the water. Something terrible had happened. She cried, 
please come down right away with a doctor. There was a doctor friend of mine with an office right across the street from my hotel. I told him that there was an emergency and asked him to do me a favor. He left a waiting room full of patients and the two of us immediately went to the beach. When we arrived, Carol was lying on the beach near the water's edge. He wasn't covered or anything. Georgia hadn't arrived yet, but the police were there. We knew right away that he was dead. The police and the medical examiner's office concluded that Rosenblum had drowned. During my interview with the then Golden Beach Chief of Police, William Hendrickson, he told me that he had heard a report over his police radio that a man was drowning at the 100 block of Ocean Boulevard. He rushed out to respond to the call. It was a rough day and the waves were high. Rosenblum entered the water between two sandbars. He was caught in a washout, also known as a riptide, which is like a river running out to sea. Apparently, he tried to get in it, and that's when he ran into trouble. Henriksen, who was six feet seven, had been a lifeguard for five years during his youth in New Hampshire. Seeing Rosenblum and another man in the water, Henriksen and his deputy, Ron Naska, who had heard the radio report in his cruiser and arrived at the same time, stripped off their clothes and went in after Rosenblum. Uh, I'll take it aside here. Remember, it said, seeing Rosenblum and another man in the water. Henriksen told me that the 5 feet 11 Rosenblum was in water that was only a little over 5 feet deep. But even at my height, I had to swim to get out to him because of the washout. I could only wade for a short period of time, and Deputy Nasca was swimming too. I saw another man struggling in the water. He had tried to save Rosenblum. I motioned to him to get back and that I would take care of it. When I got to Rosenblum, he was in a dead man's float position. Yeah, I'm going to come back to this because... Uh, this is the uh, this is a couple more pages, a very interesting little chapter here about the NFL. So stay tuned to Business Buzz. I'll be right back. A culture war. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's Word. There's a clear war going on in our culture right now, a war between right and wrong, truth and error. Ultimately, it's a war between God's Word and man's Word. Here's just one example. Teen Vogue is a publication aimed at young teen girls. Now, last year, it ran an article telling those girls that prostitution and other jobs like it are real work, that they're just a job like any other. Really, it's an attempt to normalize sin and sinful desires. You see, our secular culture is working hard to convince the next generation that morality is relative and that as long as something feels good to you, do it. But morality isn't determined by how we feel. God determines it. Discover biblical answers to the hot-button issues of our culture when you visit AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged when you go to AnswersRadio.com. One nation under God with liberty and justice for all. Fellow Americans united, we can grow strong to protect the blessings of liberty for ourselves, our children, grandchildren, and their children. Let us read and understand the life, freedom, and property protecting principles of the Constitution and embrace the godly wisdom our founding fathers instilled in our one nation under God. America, bless God. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm going to continue reading because this is where it gets good. Um, after the uh, Rosenblum's death, um, Rosenblum's body was cremated on April 4, 1979. His wife, Georgia, I believe she was a, uh, uh, she was like a Las Vegas dancer type gal. Uh, Rosenblum's body was cremated on April 4, 1979. His wife, Georgia, was over an hour late for the private ceremony in Hollywood, Florida. When she did arrive, she reportedly was already talking about her husband's estate and how it was going to be divided up. One week later, nearly 900 people attended Rosenblum's memorial service at his Bel Air estate. His wife was an hour late for that, too. Attending the hardly solemn extravaganza under a green and white tent were some of the biggest names on the show business. 
politics and sports, Warren Beatty, Mayor Tom Bradley, Jim Brown, Howard Cosell, Kirk Douglas, Greer Garson, Cary Grant. The list goes on. I won't bore you with that part. Howard Cosell recalled the funeral was not exactly well funereal. In questionable taste, it was conducted as a celebration. Winters told jokes, that was Jonathan Winters, at which the audience uneasily laughed, brought on a couple of Carol's favorite singers and a guitar player, and called upon a mix of Rosenblum's friend to speak, as though it were a roast and a toast. In the wake of Rosenblum's funeral, numerous questions arose about the circumstances of his death, which have challenged the contention that he drowned by accident. It was suggested by some that Rosenblum might have been murdered. At the time of the death, Rosenblum was still the second largest individual stockholder in Warner Communications, uh, with a bunch of stock worth nearly $11 million. However, in April 1979, the corporation was in the midst of its biggest crisis. Several of its top executives were being investigated for their ties to major East Coast Mafia figures. Also, Rosenblum would later be cited by the LAPD as having been a possible link in a major West Coast sports gambling operation with his bagman Victor Weiss, who was murdered two and a half months after Rosenblum's death. And Weiss had been implicated with Tony Spilotro and the Stardust crowd in Las Vegas, as well as in reports of the mob's alleged fixing of referees, which, which was investigated by the FBI and the IRS in 1979, while Rosenblum's football team was failing to cover the spread in two-thirds of its 1978 games. Could Rosenblum's death have been anything but an accidental drowning? If it was not, there was a whole cast of characters who would have had the means, opportunity, and motive. I don't believe that his death was accidental, Rosenblum's son Steve told my associate, William Scott Malone, and I know other people in the family have discussed it with me and feel the same way as do many other people who knew my father well. Why would a man who had a healthy respect for the water and never went in, in it by himself go in on that day when the water was extremely rough with a strong undertow? However, regardless of Rosenblum's son's suspicions, his father did go into the water despite the conditions that day. So anyway, there's a lot of speculation that um, Rosenblum was actually murdered. Uh, Rosenblum's close friend, Senator Ted Kennedy, who had come to Los Angeles to comfort the Rosenblum family the day after Carol's death, stood up during Senate proceedings in Washington and paid tribute to Rosenblum. He was familiar to generations of football players. There was irony that Rosenblum had died in the sea. In 1976, he had told Los Angeles Times sports writer Bob Oates, The ocean does for me what the desert does for others. They like the stillness. I never tire of listening to the ocean. Rosenblum left the bulk of his 300 to $500 million estate, including 70% of the ownership to, his, to the Rams to his 50-year-old wife, Georgia. He was expected to have been succeeded as chief of the Rams by his 33-year-old son, Steve, who had been left 6% of the team. So... Uh, It ended up where Georgia appointed herself president and she became the queen of professional football. So, you know, that uh, that chapter wasn't super exciting, and I, uh, I remember reading it a long time ago, but uh, the main thing that, about the, that I recommend this book is that this book is uh, 500 pages, and it goes on all talking about sports gambling, uh, the mob connections, uh, all the stuff. The other one that's interesting is when I was growing up in the 80s in the Bay Area, the owner of the San Francisco 49ers was the DeBartolo family. And uh, they are like one of the biggest uh, builders of shopping malls in the whole country. They're from like Ohio. And um, this book also has some good stuff there. So um, let me see if I can find something on that. Anyway, I'll let you look at that book, but it's called Interference. The author's name is Moldea, and uh, it explores the fact that since the Super Bowl just ended, 
there's all kinds of shenanigans that go on with those the NFL owners and uh, the history of the NFL, the gambling, all that stuff. And uh, so I think I'll just finish today with a little bit of uh, a rambling on about, um, oh, I don't know, uh, places for you to get some news. I'm always, I'm always interested in the other side of the story. And I always like to make sure that whatever you hear, you get a second opinion. Uh, one of the guys, one of the guys that's interesting to listen to is named Dave Janda. He's at DaveJanda.com, D-A-V-E-J-A-N-D-A. He's, uh, he's always got a lot of interesting stuff. There's a man named Greg Manorino who is on, um, he's on YouTube and, uh, I think I've mentioned his name before, Greg Manorino. And, uh, he's real good. He does kind of like a daily, kind of like a stock market thing. Um, oh, the other thing I've talked about Elon Musk in the past. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys are aware that Tesla stock has now hit $900 a share and it was only $300 a share, uh, just a few, uh, I think just a few months ago. I haven't looked at the chart, but, uh, so, uh, that makes it, that makes, uh, I don't know, probably makes me look kind of stupid. I've been saying, uh, Tesla doesn't make a profit, shouldn't be worth that much, but apparently I may be wrong. I have no idea. That's why I'm not a stockbroker. I have no real, uh, I'm really not good for, um, I've never been good at timing and I don't claim to be. So anyway, I just want to keep you guys posted, even though it's tax season, I'm still, I'm still going to try to keep you posted. And, uh, let's see. So, uh, Silver, I'm uh, just reading an article here. It's down under $18 again. It was over 18 So silver's still like the, the cheapest commodity around. Oh, let me see. What else can we, what else can we talk about today? Like I say, today was just a, uh, it was so, so crazy that um, I didn't do as much, uh, I didn't do as much prep work for a uh, business buzz as I like to. So I will confess that I did not. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go to my website, which is called miraclebusinessmethod.com. And it's the mental side of business. If you ever need a little alternative advice, thinking that you could use a few more sales. You could try my website called miraclebusinessmethod.com. So let me go to, let me go to the blog. There is still a glitch on this uh, website, so it's not perfect. I don't want to, uh, I have to get this fixed. One of the pages goes to the wrong, goes to the wrong place. So I'm just going to read you one of my blog posts here on the, uh, on the, uh, on the website called miraclebusinessmethod.com. And this post is called, it's called Analyze This. And I'll just read this to you. Uh, thought for the day. We need to realize while rewiring our thought system that we need to stop analyzing things. I don't mean analyze less. I mean don't analyze them at all. The bottom line is that if you look back on the last, oh, 20 years, how much of your analysis really made a bit of difference to the situation? Wouldn't you have done better just letting things flow anyway? Meaningless data cannot be analyzed. When there are at least two answers to every question, is anything meaningful, and can you analyze it to any real settlement that doesn't just beg for another analysis? Trust me, stop analyzing and just let it flow without deciding anything at all on the topic. Try this 
miraculous method today and see for yourself how well everything goes. So that leads me to um, just kind of the reason why I started that uh, website and wrote those blog posts in the, in the first place. If you can try to spend part of your day not analyzing, part of your day just being uh, like I've read from Eckhart Tolle in the past, if you try to just spend your day being not not analyzing, not judging, just kind of observing, letting things happen, uh, trying to act as natural as possible, you don't have to be quiet. You can still talk. You just don't have to make judgments. And if you try it, uh, you might find that it really is a very helpful thing. And when you think of the word helpful, it can even help the actual situation itself. In other words, you've got a situation that you're nervous about and uh, it's making you uptight. Try backing away a little bit and observing, like I've said before, observe from that other part of your mind that listens to the thoughts go by, not the part of the mind that's generating and following the thoughts and letting them uh, kind of drag you, drag you around. That's why the thing about analyzing, it's, it's, it's related to judging. But your first instinct when you start trying to work on these exercises like this is your first instinct is, oh, if I don't analyze this, something's going to, I'm going to miss something. I'm going to make the wrong choice. Something's going to happen bad and I should have analyzed everything fully. But what you can try is for starters, just try to go like five minutes without judging or analyzing anything, anything at all. Just try it. Uh, try it for five minutes. That's how you see that it's like, hey, that wasn't so bad. And if you can extend that, of course, I don't do this. Nobody can. It's a, it's a lifelong work trying to train yourself not to judge. It's virtually impossible. The entire world is just based on all these yes and no's and go this way or go that way. I mean, you can't avoid it, but you can minimize it. And the best way to do it is to do a minute at a time to start and then work at doing five minutes at a time and then 10 minutes at a time, even when you're talking with someone. And I'll tell you one thing, it's better to practice on people you don't know too well because once you're with your spouse or your best friend or someone you know real well, it gets very difficult to do. So I recommend you practice with people you don't know too well, like if you're talking to a bank teller or a clerk at the grocery store, something like that. Just try to go one minute without any judgments, without really even listening. Just sort of be there together with that person and sort of let yourself totally kind of go into that present moment mind and don't think about other stuff and see how it goes. You, you Sometimes you'll find that it goes a lot better than you thought it would because of doing this just relieves it relieves all that judgment pressure, all that negative negativity, all that worry. Uh, try to go a minute or two without judging anything and then gradually increase that. Then try to do five minutes, try to do 10 minutes. I've never done that long myself, but I've been working at it for years. It's not easy, but it's worth trying. So I'm Harold Littlejohn CPA. I'm in the thick of tax season. I'll talk to you next time on Business Buzz. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. KKXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR, Chico.com. I'm Keith Peters. President Trump aims to give an optimistic State of the Union address during a time of extreme partisanship. White House correspondent Greg Clugston reports. Administration officials say the president will lay out a vision of relentless optimism. The theme of tonight's speech is the great American comeback and will highlight economic strength. But partisan division will serve as a backdrop. Mr. Trump will address the nation as just the third president in U.S. history to be impeached. 
He's expected to be acquitted in his Senate trial tomorrow. Senior administration officials have been tight-lipped about whether or not the president will mention his impeachment during tonight's speech. Greg Clugston, the White House. The Senate is so far cleaving neatly along party lines in advance of Wednesday's virtually certain votes to acquit President Trump on two impeachment charges. A leading GOP moderate, Susan Collins of Maine, has announced she'll vote to acquit Trump, leaving Utah Senator Mitt Romney as the only potential GOP vote to convict Trump. The chamber's top Republican majority leader, Mitch McConnell, again slammed the impeachment drive of House Democrats as the most rushed, least fair, and least thorough in history and confirmed he'll vote to acquit Trump. Two frontrunners have so far emerged in the Iowa Democratic caucus race. Capitol Hill correspondent Bernie Bennett reports. Early and incomplete results from Iowa's Democratic caucus shows former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg narrowly leading Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. The first batch of results, which accounted for 62% of the approximately 1,700 precincts across the state, showed Buttigieg leading with about 28% of the delegates who will eventually be elected to the national convention. Sanders was second with 25% of the delegate shares, and Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts has taken 18% of the vote, while former Vice President Joe Biden lagged in fourth place with just under 16%. Bernie Bennett in Washington. A broad rally on Wall Street as the Dow was up by 407. The Nasdaq rose 194. More at townhall.com. Sebastian Gorka here. Maybe you've been hearing about Relief Factor, the 100% drug-free supplement that helps a person's body deal with inflammation and pain. You've heard all the wonderful testimonials. Well, I have my own testimonial. For many years, my lower back pain was becoming a serious problem. The short story is... I finally gave it a try, and now I'm out of pain too. So if you're in pain, you can order the three-week quick start for just $19.95. Go to relieffactor.com. You've been listening to Dr. Tony Evans for some time now, and you feel a push to go further, deeper into what Dr. Evans